0: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science.
1: The Naked Scientists.
0: Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and also here this week is Dave Ansell. Hi Dave. Hi Chris. Now coming up this week, scientists have discovered the oldest human remains outside of Africa. They're 1.8 million years old and we'll be finding out what they can tell us about where we all came from. Also we've got the scientific formula for mixing the perfect cake, yum yum, and we've got news of a new movie which might not be a box office smash but it's certainly going to be a hit with scientists because researchers have watched how the tiny platelets
2: that help our blood to clot get formed in the first place. So that's all on the way. And also this week we'll be looking at the science of robots and how scientists are now creating clever machines that can carry out crowd control, go into battle on our behalf, perform delicate surgery better even than a human, and even care for the human and even care for the elderly. But can they be trusted? Plus in this week's question of the week we're getting to the bottom of an interesting question about underwater vision. It turns out you can learn to see better
3: underwater. There is a group of humans that seem to see quite well underwater. These are the Moken who are wandering sea gypsies off Thailand and Malaysia. They make a living by diving in the sea, often without goggles, to harvest things like abalone.
0: And uh, we'll be clearing that matter up about underwater vision later on in the programme. So if you've got a science question for us, if you'd like to talk about robots, for instance, get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, we're pretty well acquainted, Dave, with the idea that humans somehow came out of Africa and then populated the whole of the world. But no one really knows what the steps were that took place for that to happen. And a group of researchers have made an interesting discovery this week, which has kind of put a whole new spin on where we come from, because they're suggesting that rather than just being born in Africa and then spreading out across the rest of the world, perhaps what happened is that humans emerged in Africa, went out and colonised the world, Then they went back into Africa and turned into modern humans and then came out again and spread across the rest of the world as we know it. And the evidence for this has been turned up in a place called Demanese, which is in Georgia. And David Law Kipanitsa, who's from the Georgia National Museum in Tbilisi, has been working at this Demanese site. And they've uncovered the skeletons of these people, which they're 1.8 million years old. They are smaller than modern humans, but they're not; they're a bit more primitive as well. So if you look at their hands, for example, their hands are much more like an ape's hands. They'll be good for swinging in the trees. But their legs are very well developed, so they could run very fast and cover big distances on the ground. They also had quite small brains, so they're a bit more primitive than modern humans. But what's really interesting about the story is if you look in Africa, about three million years ago, we think the first kind of humanoids in the form of Homo habilis appeared. And then there's a jump before you see Homo erectus. They're much more like us. And this fossil seems to fit between those two but it's obviously not in Africa so this is where they get the idea that perhaps these Homo habilis type people came out of Africa evolved into these people a bit further up around the world and then they went back into Africa turned into Homo erectus and that then turned into us.
2: So is it possible that they, actually have, that they could have evolved in Africa and just come out and we haven't found them in Africa yet?
0: Pretty funny, though, that people have looked and there's, there's pretty good finds in Africa and we can find evidence of Homo erectus and Homo habilis in some cases living in the same place side by side at the same time but no one's found these sort of intermediate people in Africa. They've turned up elsewhere. So you can't really put that story together and expect it to hold together. So that's why they think that, that this may be the case. OK,
4: cool.
2: Now, scientists have also found out why it's so difficult to mix ingredients into a cake. Now, Emmanuel Guyard. Done what? M- m- sorry? <laughs> m- mix your ingredients into a cake, mix them up. Some people have been doing that for centuries. Um, but he's. Anyway, um, he's been looking at how things mix together and found out that um, he, what he did is he got some very clear syrup and then added some black stuff to it and then mixed it with a rod sort of automatically so he could get repeatable results and he found that in the center it mixes really well and the way the mixing seems to work is you kind of you have two things that to get next to each other you stretch them out and you sort of fold them over and then you stretch that folded stuff over and fold that over a bit like making um dough kneading dough like a baker needs dough so what's the problem well, that's a really effective way of mi- mixing. But the problem is that these edges, because the sides of the bucket or the bowl are quite sticky, the stuff sticks to them. So instead of having, you get really nicely mixed stuff in the middle, then occasionally you get lumps of unmixed stuff coming in from the outside. And he's managed to get good numbers for this and can predict how it happens now. Um, and so he's, so if you're ever making a cake at home, what you've got to make sure you do is you scrape stuff off the edge and pull it into the middle where it'll get well mixed.
0: My wife did that and managed to feed the fork to the whizzy things that go around and they all got bent. <laughs> so don't, actually don't do that.
2: Okay, if you're doing it manually, <laughs> do it like this. Don't do it with any power tools being turned on. Power like a Black &
0: Decker. Um... <laughs> Why does it take a scientist to work that out? I would have thought good cooks would have been able to tell us that.
2: And good cooks have been t- doing this all the time. But if you're, d- especially if you're looking at something where you're mixing very large quantities or you're doing it in slightly different position different environments. So maybe if you're doing it very, very small scale, which you don't really understand intuitively, yeah. it's important to understand how the physics works. Okay, so, so if
0: you're if you're ma- if you're making cakes on a massive industrial scale, and this may this may help to make sure that your process is more efficient and,
2: and the materials actually. Make so you can design a machine, and the machine will behave how you expect it to behave. Yeah.
0: There you go. So the, the formula for making the perfect cake, you heard it here on The Naked Scientist. Now, a really exciting discovery, which has been published in the journal Science this week, group of scientists at, the, at Harvard, uh, Tobias Junt and his colleagues, they have watched in real time as platelets, these tiny fragments of cells that help our blood to clot, are actually made. And the way they did it was by taking some mice which have been genetically programmed so that these cells in their bone marrow called megakaryocytes that produce these platelets glow green or yellow under a certain kind of light produced by a microscope. And the researchers were able to watch as these cells produced these platelets and and squirted them into the blood inside their bone marrow. And what the cells do is to extend these really thin fingers of cell into or through holes in the walls of blood vessels so that the the ends of the cells were dangling in the blood flow that was going through the inside of the bone marrow. And the blood flow snaps off little bits of cell surface and those are the platelets and they initially start off as little clumps and then they go through the lungs which fragments them a bit more, filters out the big lumps and turns it into lots of little ones and you get these platelets and no one's ever seen this before, we, we kind of knew that these, these cells made platelets we had no idea how they got formed so it looks like it's just the blood flow snapping off bits of cell and why it's really important to understand this is there are lots of diseases which are caused by having too few platelets and no one knows how to make them artificially we have to go to human donors to get them so understanding the process means we might be a step closer to making them artificially and then being able to help people who don't have enough of them
2: so you might be able to grow the cells in a cut with a little pretend blood vessel and then pump pretend blood around and yeah simulate the
0: conditions that make them in the body so you don't have to then rely on human donors because whenever you rely on human donors there are risks of things like infection and also the tissue goes off and it, it it's in a limited amount you can't you can only have so much of it whereas if you make it
2: artificially you can make huge amounts brilliant now, scientists in Japan have discovered that thunderstorms act as massive particle accelerators. Um, I apologise, Harifumi Tishiana, something like, Anyway, I'm sorry, Harifumi, um, of Japan's Riken Research Institute and colleagues installed a directional gamma ray detector in the, in the nuclear power plant in Japan. Um, and they've just picked up a 40-second burst of incredibly high-energy gamma rays. So they weren't actually looking at thunderstorms, they were looking in the power station for gamma rays? I think actually they, they just happened to build it by a power station because their research institute attached to a power station. They were actually okay. looking for these things.
0: And and a thunderstorm went off and they saw this massive burst of gamma.
2: Yeah, these are um, all the photons have got um, a wavelength 40 million times higher than normal visible light, they're about... Ten to forty um, mega electron volts of energy—they're really quite powerful. So, in other gamma- words, this is a, this
0: is like a, a massive X-ray coming out of the sky, which but- you would never normally detect in the atmosphere. Yeah, Under normal circumstances. Right.
2: Um They think what's happening is that in the um, in a thunderous cloud, you get really high voltages just before a lightning strike happens. And if you get a few free electrons at the top of that, they'll suddenly get attracted down through the cloud. They accelerate re- incredibly fast, near the speed of light, and they hit something, hit an atom or something, suddenly stop. All well, that energy gets converted into a gamma ray, which they're picking up. People have picked up really short, sort of millisecond bursts before. Um, actually, they found them when they were trying to look for gamma rays coming from space. They had a space telescope up there, and they kept finding these things coming from down by it, from the Earth. They were very confused. They, did, they thought they might be nuclear bombs, but actually they, actually they were just coming from um, th- thunderstorms. H- How
0: did they know it was the thunder clap
2: that produced Um that? Because their detector they've got is directional. They could look at the direction which all the gamma rays were coming from, and they could look at the spectrum, and they found out that it was the same as um, electrons suddenly hitting something. And it lined up with a thunder cloud, which they could see outside, so they knew it was coming from so the So given
0: that we worry about gamma rays and things like that because they are known to be capable of causing cancer, does this mean thunderstorms cause cancer? There are 2,000 thunderstorms happening all around the Earth at any snap time in pre- at the present, uh, you know, about a million lightning bolts a day. Um, does that mean it's causing cancer then?
2: They think that the, especially the very long bursts, are very, very directional, so they only hit a very small area, and there's probably not that many gamma rays, which is what's surprising is how energetic they are. So it's probably not good for you if you get hit by one, but not the end of the world, certainly. <laughs> so how are they going to take this further then? I'm, I'm presumably they've got to go and study more,
0: more thunderstorms.
2: Yeah, just, I think they're probably just going to sit there and wait for more thunderstorms to come over the top of their, th- their nuclear power station with a detector and hope will get some more data. Intriguing. Well, to finish up, a
0: really interesting study now because thunderstorms have been linked to producing various things in the atmosphere which could make your allergies worse. They can certainly also contribute to pollution and that's because they can produce oxides of nitrogen. They're also quite good for fertilising plants in that respect. But no one's really ever understood the link that happens between days when you have a bad air day as opposed to a bad hair day and why people on bad air days get high levels of heart attacks and strokes. People have thought that blood seems to be stickier and clot more readily, but why should that happen? Well, now a group of researchers who at Northwestern University in Illinois, it's Gokhan Mutlu and his team, uh, have sussed it out. And they were looking at mice to which they fed particulates, so things like what come out of a diesel engine. And they got the mice to breathe this in and they took some blood samples and found that the levels of various components of the blood that are responsible for making blood clots shot up. So factor 2, factor 8, factor 10 and also a component called fibrinogen went up. So then they tested the same particulates on a group of genetically modified mice that lacked a chemical in the blood called IL-6. And this is an immune signalling hormone. It just is produced by immune cells to create an immune response. And in these mice that didn't have this hormone, they were totally unresponsive to the pollution their blood didn't get any thicker so they thought well this must be important so then they took some more normal mice and they wondered whether it's alveolar macrophages cells that eat rubbish that we breathe in and, and mop up rubbish in the bottom of the lungs or they clean the lungs they wondered if those cells were what was producing this so they gave the mice a drug called clodronate which gets rid of these macrophages and they too Did not respond to the particulate pollution So what the thing's going on is when we breathe in Particles from say diesel engines and things It goes into the lungs It goes into these cells called macrophages Which squirt out this IL-6 Because they get activated by the pollution They're trying to engulf it and in the process of trying to engulf it They get activated The IL-6 goes into the bloodstream and it increases the levels of these clotting factors
2: Why would the white blood cells want to increase the amount of clotting factors when they're eating a load of stuff? Well,
0: I was thinking about this, and I'm wondering if you've got a bacterial infection or something going on. Perhaps the immune system thinks if you've got it's being attacked, perhaps there are going to be microorganisms squirting out cocktails of things that make holes in blood vessels, and they might make your blood clot. They might be sorry, they might make you bleed. So, or bleed into your tissues. So, this is a protective way of of making blood clots to plug up holes that microbes might make in blood vessels and therefore contain microbes to a, to a place in the part of the body where the immune system can, can more readily get a handle on them. So it might be that the body is mistaking the pollution for microbial attack. Cool. Sorting out the sparks
5: from the quarks.
0: The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com it's The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. We have a robot extravaganza in store for you this week, where in a, in a short while we'll be talking about robots, where they came from, how they developed, how we use them, how they can go into battle on our behalf, and also how we can make them intelligent, free-thinking machines. But may they also be machines with murderous intent? Well, we'll be finding out later. But first, Dave, you were talking about lightning. Here's a sort of lightning on a miniature scale. Question from Sharon. She's in Australia. I recently put a cast-iron Le Creuset pot in my microwave. It's got expensive cooking culinary <laughs> taste. They're nice pots, aren't they, Le creuset uh, It was in there for 20 seconds and it flashed. Nothing cracked, but there was a burning smell. My question is, why? And could that have contaminated the
2: food in the pot? So who have you poisoned, Sharon? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess Le creuset pots, they they've got a cast iron lid as well. What might have happened is that if the cast iron... Pot and the lid were insulated from each other, um, because the microwaves um, produce they, what, the way they heat things up is by putting electric currents flow through them. So, big electric currents through both the pot and the lid. And if somewhere you get a large enough voltage between the pot and the lid to cause a spark, you get a spark between the pot and the lid, and that will probably that will probably make the flash, and it might damage some of the enamel on the surface. Do you think it makes it really really hot, and maybe splinters off
0: some of the enamel and you, vaporizes? You might it, vaporize so. some of the enamel. I don't so know what that they're would putting in the
2: Yeah. Do you think it
0: would have been toxic? Because she's obviously worried about being sued, having fed um,
2: someone out of that pot. I, I, I mean, it's probably not going to taste very nice. I doubt they put anything too poisonous in the enamels on cookware in case you kind of scrub them and you, get, and you end up eating bits. So I wouldn't worry too much. It's going to be very low quantities. But I wouldn't eat lots of it on as, out of preference, personally. <laughs> Um, also got a question here from Kieran in Dublin. Um, he says he loves the show and he listens to public podcasts every week, which is great. His daughter came home from school recently to announce that she had learnt at school that day that you could get wetter running through a rain shower than walking. How can this be? Hmm.
0: I, I think, actually, this is a really good question that we should say to... What do you think at home? If you're, if you're in the rain, should you walk calmly through the rain? And alternatively, if you haven't got an umbrella, of course... Or should you sprint through the rain, which will make you wetter? How do you stay dry? Email chris at com If you have a solution, what's the best way to get home in the rain and stay driest? To answer Kieran's question. Now we are talking about robots and robotics this week And our first guest is Noel Sharkey He's Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics at Sheffield University He's been studying robots for years, he says So who better to ask him about how close we really are to seeing in real life what we have in the movies Hello Noel Hello Chris, you doing? Thank you doing? for joining us on The Naked Scientist Can I just ask you, because I was thinking about this before the programme I don't actually know why we call robots robots Where do we get that word from?
1: <laughs> You've asked the right person here Um, It comes from a play in 1921 by Carl Chepek, or Capek, who was a Czechoslovakian playwright. And the play wasn't great. It was called Rossum's Universal Robots. Um, But it debuted all over the world, Tokyo, London, uh, New York, and caused an absolute sensation because it was the beginning of this idea that uh, robots will take over the world and kill everybody because the play ends with all the humans being killed, just one being kept, actually, who was a scientist who could make new ones. But then one of the robots, they were biochemical, by the way, more like what we call androids and very like humans. And the play ends with the um, two lead robots, male and female, uh, with the female getting pregnant. And they walk off into the sunset holding hands.
0: So, But why did they decide on that term robot? Oh, the, that's the, the word,
1: sorry, the word robot itself, it's uh, the Czechoslovakian word, I believe, is robota, meaning forced labour.
0: But that's quite true, isn't it? Because that's, that's pretty much how we exploit robots. Yes, that's
1: what it was at the time, yes. But they're very different than what we think of a robot now, really. It wasn't the first sort of t- big tin robot or anything. Now, most people are
0: acquainted with the idea that we've got robots in car factories spraying cars and painting naughty pictures on them and then spraying over the top of them again as the adverts, have you think. But um, where else, in an exciting sort of context, do we find robots today?
1: Well, we find them all over the place. I'm not sure about exciting contexts, but um, certainly another one you see in the adverts is, is the Asimo robot, Honda's Asimo robot. You might have seen that. It looks like a little spaceman, small child. And you see it wandering about and going upstairs and meeting uh, with, a, with a big spaceman at the Washington Museum of Science. Uh, and that robot was very clever because it took them something like, um, I think it was $18 million to construct it. Uh, over over a period from the 1980s, because we didn't have walking robots, it's a fully formed android, and I've done quite a bit of work with it myself and walked with it, and it is really convincing. It walks like a human. Well, well why is it so difficult to s- make it walk though? Um, no wh- balance, why? balance, okay. center of gravity. And one of the things about ASIMO is it's got a backpack where its computing is, and it's got a, something called a zero moment algorithm, which was discovered by an Eastern European, which is very important. But where they put all the money was in actual fact on the um, speed of transmission from the sensors. So you can think of them like tilt sensors on a snooker table, uh, not a snooker table, sorry, pinball. So you've got your tilt sensors, then they send information to the backpack, the computer, and it sends information to the motors and gets them to adjust themselves to keep the centre of gravity right. But it does this 50,000 times a second. That, that's the real magic. It has to be really fast to keep it up.
0: So is it, when making robots, is it just a case of copying what humans do? Or, or are we trying to be a bit more, I say advanced, it makes us sound a bit sad, but
1: um, are we trying to be more advanced than that? Yeah well with the walking we're not quite as good as humans I mean when I say it walks like a human it actually if you see it and and work with it it actually walks like a human that's dying to go to the loo it's got that kind of lavatory walk in a hurry to the toilet (laughs) so it's kind of an an odd walk Um, We've always been trying to make robots better than humans because we want them to do things that we can't do obviously like heavy lifting and, and stuff like that but in the main you find robots now not a lot in Britain. We're actually the worst in, in, or maybe the best in Europe. Uh, we have less robots than anywhere else in the workplace. I mean, in Japan, for instance, there are a vast number of robots doing floor cleaning, pool cleaning, window cleaning, all kinds of cleaning. Uh, I have a robot vacuum cleaner myself. How does that work? Well, you just put it on the floor. Um, the big hold-up for robot vacuum cleaners since the 1950s was they couldn't do stairs. And <laughs> like
0: the Daleks yeah, exactly. but How do they know where
1: the dirt is? Uh, well they don't But but they gave up on the stair business Because they thought somebody had the good idea of thinking Well let's leave the stair business for now And we'll make them small so that people can carry them up the stairs I mean mine's like a frisbee It's a Roomba made by iRobot And um, what it does is It, it has a lovely spiralling movement Round the floor And if it meets an obstacle it It sort of avoids it and carries on with the spiral So sometimes it will cover the same ground again I know we had a pool cleaner once that used to have a penchant for cleaning one bit
0: of a swimming pool but it it kind of avoided the same bits every time and it was a real pain because you then ended up having to waste loads of time getting the brush out just to clean that bit so in fact it, it took almost as long to just do it and the whole pool, as it did to get this blinking robot going but well, hopefully that'll yeah. improve that in the
1: future but yeah, well, the, um, Roomba, the Roomba does a bit of that it can get stuck in a corner you have to sort of keep your eye on it a little bit you know it's not it's not absolutely perfect now one of the things that you were involved
0: with is robot wars is that right yes that's right now because yes. one of the things that people have been talking about a lot is is getting robots to perhaps go into battle on our behalf
1: yes that's correct yes so how would that work well well I mean it's not it's not things that people are talking about. There are already a lot of robots working in... in uh, well, there's something like 4,000 in Iraq at the moment and an awful lot in Afghanistan. It's very difficult to track the numbers because the military aren't completely forthcoming about that But what there are these many. robots doing then? Uh, mainly, well, they're doing useful work in bomb disposal, so what you call IED, which is Improvised Explosive Devices. So they drive them around and they look for explosive devices, they've got cameras on them and they're remote controlled mainly and when they find one then they use the robot to detonate or something like that um, but it's quite, there's some quite funny stories coming out because the soldiers are treating these like real beings even though they're remote controlling them um, there's a there's a droid hospital. It's called where the robots take their soldiers every. Uh, sorry, the robot the soldiers take the robots to have them fixed, and soldiers actually want the same robot back, even though they're offered a new model of exactly the same robot. And there are lots of stories of robots taking sold ro- Sorry, soldiers taking the robots fishing on their day off, so they're sitting in a boat and they put the fishing rod in the robot's claw hand. So they've become very attached to them. You'd be a bit worried about the robot shorting out, though, if it fell in, wouldn't you? That's true. But I think they've become attached to them because when people are in danger, they're more attracted to you know the thing they're in danger with. So so there's that. But recently, they've sent only four so far. But these uh, bomb disposal robots now, made by um, Foster Miller, they're called the Talon Sword, or the Talon Sword. And they've sent in some now that are armed with M24 and M249 machine guns, uh, Barrett fifty caliber rifles, grenade launchers, anti tank rocket launchers, and these are still remote controlled. I've seen these, and they, they're deadly. It looks like a small robot wars robot on tracks. Um, but, when you see the machine guns and things on top, and also the the army really like them and they 're very useful obviously for killing people without actually confronting them well, presumably they don 't also draw a salary, which is quite beneficial they don 't draw a salary, but they cost quite a lot i mean but they 're not that expensive now they 're probably around about fifteen thousand dollars, which is what eight thousand uh, pounds so you can 't just throw them away, but they 've sent four in, and there are eighty more in order, and everybody wants them so so they 're talking very significant, about very significant numbers of them. A new company has just been given an order for 3,000 more to go into Iraq a company called FX Robots um, the usual company that does it is iRobots with Rodney Brooks um, that's the people who make my vacuum cleaner and interesting story about the new robot because the guy who made it is an employee of, of iRobot, was an employee he left and now he's just got a $180 million contract from the military and I robot detectives have witnessed him putting stuff into dumpsters and cleaning hard drives. So he's, he's being prosecuted now for stealing their ideas. There's a lot of money. It's a lot (laughs) of money at stake. That's the big thing. There are many companies getting involved here. And of course, we've got the killer robots in the sky. Um, now people might not think of them as robots like the cruise missile or pilotless aircraft, which have been around since in America since about 1918, in fact. And the Predator robot will do almost everything autonomously. And it found a second commander command of Osama bin Laden. And what it did was very clever. I don't like this stuff at all, by the way. If I, I sound like an evil genius or something, I'm not. I don't like this. Um, but what it did is it, it found, them in a, found him in a car. It switched on his mobile phone using satellite technology. And as soon as the phone came on, the operator, who was 7,000 miles away in the Nevada desert, pressed a button and it vaporised the car with two hellfire missiles. Blinking hell. Thank you very much, Noel. Well,
0: Noel's here with us for the rest of the programme, so if you want to ask him any questions, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. It's our programme all about robots. That was Noel Sharkey, and uh, he is from the University of Sheffield, so he's an expert on anything robot. But now we're going to totally change
2: direction, look at robots much closer to home. Have you ever wondered how in the field of genetics you've been able to give us such fast results with sequenced numerous genomes, including our own? That's tens of thousands of genes in less than a decade of scientific research. We sent naked scientist Mira Senthalingam to the Wellcome-Sanger Institute in Hingston where a significant proportion of the recently completed human genome sequence was decoded to find out what this has to do with robots.
6: This week, I'm at the Wellcome Trust-Sanger Institute in Hingston, Cambridgeshire where DNA sequencing and analysis occur on a huge scale to help us understand just what our genes do and how they function. This one place sequenced a third of the 25,000-gened human genome. But how did they do it? In order to have genes ready to be sequenced, you need to insert the gene into a bacterium for which you already know the DNA sequence. You place this gene insert between a part of the sequence that encodes colour, for example, blue colouring, That way, when the bacteria multiplies to produce colonies, the bacteria containing your insert will be disrupted in this colouring and remain colourless. This allows you to pick them out from the blue bacterial colonies that don't have your gene insert. So you then pick out your colonies, break open the cells of the bacteria, extract the DNA and load it onto the machines to be sequenced. But as smooth as that sounds, the stages, such as picking the colonies, can be tedious and time-consuming and can also differ depending on the opinion of the people choosing the colonies. The solution? Get a robot to do this for you. The robots that pick colonies are basically a big box in which there's a tray at the bottom to put lots of petri dishes in, and a robotic arm that hangs down from the top and seems to slide around. But how on earth does this box actually pick specific colonies of bacteria? I'm off to meet Sarah Sims, who's going to fill me in on just how
7: these robots do their job. Well there's a camera that looks at each of the petri dishes which have got colonies on them and it can see the colonies. (laughs) It's been programmed to look at a certain size of colony whether it's a single colony and what colour it is because there are two types of colony on there. There's a colony with an insert and one without an insert and the one without an insert is blue and the robot's able to identify that and doesn't pick blue colonies, just picks the colonies that have the insert.
6: Just in the time that I've been in here now, how many colonies would you say have been picked?
7: Well, it picks about 2,000 colonies an hour. Before robots, we used to pick about 800 colonies compared to 2,000.
6: That's a really big difference.
7: Yes, it is. It's made a huge difference with the amount of throughput we we can do.
6: So, I mean, I know that when it comes to kind of picking colonies and things like that, you need really sterile conditions because it's so easy for things to get contaminated. How is that managed with robots?
7: Well, the room that we're in is in sterile conditions with the the air filtered. uh, And also the robots are enclosed in a glass box, which helps to prevent any air getting in to contaminate things. I don't think I need to say that surely you're very happy about the introduction of robots. Yes, with the numbers that we have to produce, we wouldn't be able to do it without an awful lot more people and an awful lot more lab space. So
6: having learnt just what a difference the robots have made here at the Sanger Institute, I want to know how they work and how they were designed in the first place. So I'm here with Jonathan Davis, who's project manager on the robotics team. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. You design the robots, do you?
4: Yes, we look at what the um, people in the labs want to do and then we try and design a robot that will cope with the tasks that they want to perform.
6: Did you design, say, the colony-picking one or the pipetting ones, which I've happened to see this morning?
4: Yes, they were designed by this group.
6: What was actually involved in coming up with the designs for those robots?
4: There was quite a lot of work to do with camera imaging and looking at colonies. When they pick them by hand, you use a lot of judgment by your own eye and your own hand, but making the robot make those sort of judgments as well, took quite a bit of fine-tuning to get it right.
6: Would you say that the robots are more accurate than the samples being done manually?
4: I think what's probably more important is that they do the same task again and again with the same accuracy. A person doing it, sometimes you get it spot on, other times it's not quite, but with the robot doing it, you get the same result time after time after time, and that's usually what's, what's wanted.
6: These robots have made a big impact on work here at Thanger Institute. What's next? What are the future prospects?
4: We're trying to come up with robots that are a lot more flexible. The ones you've seen were designed for one job and they do one job only. They do it very well, but people want to do different tasks depending on what results they get. They might want to change the robot to do it, so they want to add a bit of intelligence, if you like, so we're trying to go down that route.
6: But is there any risk, say, in developing robots like that that you might be pushing aside actual people in the labs?
4: The decisions that these robots make, they're no way as clever as a human being. They can only make pretty limited decisions, to be honest. They haven't got the intuition that a human being has got, which is what you need to get new results and things moving forward.
6: It looks like this is only the beginning of robot use and gene sequencing, but I don't think this is a case where robots are going to take over the role of humans. Robotics is merely taking away the drudgery of lab work, allowing teams to spend time on more complicated procedures and theories, and preventing them from getting things like repetitive strain injury. I wonder if I can get them to design a robot to do my typing for me.
2: That was Mira Senthalingam finding out about the importance of robots in gene sequencing at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute.
0: And this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Dave. And we're talking about robots this week. In a second we'll be catching up with Professor Jim Little and Dr Pear Eric Forsen there at the UBC. And they've done something called the Semantic Robot Vision Challenge. In other words, building a robot that can identify things and teach itself to identify things by looking up pictures on the internet. How do they do that? Well, we'll be finding out shortly. We'll also be exploring artificial intelligence. How do you make robots so that they can actually teach themselves things and become more intelligent in themselves? And could that have murderous consequences for us, the people who own and build them? And also, we'll be showing you how to build your very own electromagnet. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com And if you'd like to get in touch with The Naked Scientist, with Dr Chris and Dr Dave, email chris at thenakedscientist.com Now, we've been talking about robots this, this week, and now we're going to look at a way in which you can build a robot which hopefully can teach itself some things Joining us from the UBC is Professor Jim Little. Hello, Jim. Hello. So, what was the big challenge that you were trying to overcome here?
8: Well, the Semantic Robot Vision Challenge was uh, a contest to bring together computer vision scientists and roboticists. The challenge uh, involved a robot uh, uh, learning how to find uh, a group of objects uh, in a room.
0: Why is that such a challenge?
8: Well, we'd like to build robot uh, home assistants or uh, intelligent uh, devices to work in the home. And uh, a robot has to know the various unusual and different objects that live in a a place with us. And uh, we've gotten very good in the last while as computer vision scientists to recognize particular objects, like a box of of tissues or a a cola bottle. But uh, to work in a home, a robot needs to be able to see and understand Uh, objects like chairs and cups and tables, uh, and they're much more challenging and interesting to So if a
0: person, for instance, said, I'd like a cup, uh, and because their cup is different than every other cup the robot's ever seen, you need a robot that can intuitively then work out what a cup must be from first principles. So that sounds impossible. How do you go about doing that?
8: Well, in this particular case, we uh, looked at... uh, Images uh, got from the web by looking up under uh, search engines for the word cup. And we tried to find uh, characteristics that uh, cup images might share, such as the circular opening at the top and the more or less cylindrical um, sides or the handles on the cups. And these have uh, appearances that we can try to recognize uh, in the images. And then uh, when we go look for them in the room, uh, we can find the object by identifying these features again.
0: So it's just going on to, say, Google and trawling through images that it sees of things fitting the tag cup and then deciding that must be what a cup looks like. So how does it decode the picture to work out what the salient parts are? How does it as- attach the same amount of importance to, say, the hole in the top and the handle as the shape?
8: It, it, currently, we just use uh, techniques to finding interesting and distinctive points on the uh, object's uh, others uh, groups, not ours, work more on the shape of the boundary of the objects. But uh, we've come a long way towards being able to recognize these, these distinctive features uh, from different viewpoints uh, in different images. And uh, in this challenge, what we did was uh, look for features that showed up many times in different images of cups, for example.
0: So what about if someone was really nasty and they've mislabeled a picture of a cup uh, and it's actually a saucer and it says cup and saucer, but it's only a saucer? Would your robot then be fooled?
8: It it would, but I think that uh, what it does is try to gather lots of evidence. So if the feature shows up many times in those images, it it recognizes that that this feature is useful for uh, cups and that the other one was irrelevant. In fact, going to Google to get images means you get lots of different images, most of them useful, but uh, not all of them.
0: So, if I could just switch across to Pear, because we're also we're also joined by Pear Eric Forsen, who works with Jim. Pear, what were the major problems in you had to overcome to to make this happen?
9: Yeah, so so when when you search on the internet, you obviously have this problem that uh, a lot of the f- things you look for um, aren't aren't actually like you have you have many other images that match the same tag as as you discussed before and. Uh, and uh, we've tried various ways of filtering out the the bad images. Like if you have a a cartoon of an object, or or if you have a, a person drawing something by hand, it doesn't uh, match as well with the, the real world. So that was one big problem we had to to encounter to solve. And uh, another thing that um, was when we actually went into out in the environment and tr- started looking for the objects. We had to somehow limit the search, um, so so we we had our ob- our robot being interest driven, and um, the problem with uh, the environment, particular environment we were were at in the competition, was that it um, <clears throat> had many many interesting things. So the robot looked at um, looked at other things than the objects, and uh, how. T- That was also a problem we had to tackle.
0: And Jim, when you actually did the the challenge, the semantic robot vision challenge, um, what was the competition like? In other words, what were other people wheeling out?
8: Uh, uh, Wheeling out the other kinds of robots, you mean? Um, There were other small robots that had, uh, well, ours was large. We had a large robot with a uh, stereo camera on it, a a simple still uh, image camera, all on a pan-tilt unit. The other competitors also had um, many different cameras, uh, and uh, we all... uh, had small platforms that allowed us to walk around amongst the tables and, uh, that uh, composed the, the contest region. The uh, objects we were looking for were either on the tops of the tables or on the floor, kind of separated from each other, scattered around the room.
0: And how successful was your robot? I mean, presumably they, they put things there that they had no chance in hell of ever having seen, so they had to teach <laughs> themselves to recognize it. So how successful were you?
8: Well, we, were pretty, uh, we did well. There were 15 objects we were asked to find, and of that 15, uh, we found seven. Uh, and finding an object means returning to home base with a picture of the uh, object and a rectangle drawn in the image to say exactly where the object is. We did very well on specific objects, like brands of particular uh, potato chips or chocolate bars. Much harder, though, is to find uh, generic objects like red peppers or cups or vacuum cleaners uh we, we succeeded in getting a red pepper but we think it was by accident because we happened to find a picture on the web that looked very similar to the one the the, the pepper that we actually found
0: so home help robots but not for people who happen to have a penchant for peppers like people in italy then
8: <laughs> apples are hard too. <laughs> a little way to go
0: thank you very much jim Thank you. That's Professor Jim Little and also Dr. Per Eric Forson. there at the UBC, that's the University of British Columbia's Laboratory for Computational Intelligence, and they built Curious George, which is a robot that, that used pictures in cyberspace to identify objects in the real world. And this is the real world, and it's The Naked Scientists with Dr. Chris and Dr. Dave. We're talking robots this week, and in a second we're going to be finding out about artificial intelligence. If you've got any questions for us, email chris at thenakedscientist.com fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed <laughs> on your way to work or even at work mm-hmm. why not subscribe to our podcast for more information visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast It's the Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris and Dr. Dave. Dave got an email here for you from Brian uh, Ray. And he says, Hi there, Naked Scientist. This is Brian. Uh, I'm at university majoring in biology. I really appreciate listening to your program. It turns me into a real know it all for what it's worth. I have a science question for you. This summer, I've taken up playing the guitar. Unfortunately, all I have is a steel string guitar, and it's made some pretty wicked calluses all over the ends of my fingers. I've noticed that the mouse pad on my laptop no longer responds to the tips of my calloused fingers, but it does work perfectly well with the fingerprints. Of all fingers on the uh, on the other hand, and the click wheel of my iPod also responds to my calloused fingers. So how does that work?
2: I think the way that the trackpads on laptops work is that they have two sets of wires, um, in two two, one running horizontally and one running vertically, Um, and then they look at what's called the capacitance between the two of them. So if you make a voltage in one of them, how much that voltage is picked up in the other one. And if you put your finger near it, that changes quite considerably. Um, but if, you, in fact, if you're anything conductive near it, it will change it. Um, no, but the problem is, if you've got a lot of very thick, calloused finger, uh, dry skin on the top, that's insulating, so it's not conducting anymore, and so it won't have the same effect. And what about with this iPod then? Why does that work? I'm guessing that's just, probably they've just got a slightly more sensitive system. Or is it pressure sensitive, perhaps? Could be. I have, well, looking, definitely some of the iPod ones work on the same way as a um, laptop um, trackpad. But I'm possibly the some pressure-sensitive ones. I don't know about the older um, iPods, but or it could just be they're more sensitive and they can they've got they can detect you from further away.
0: Okay. well, I'm glad we managed to sort that one out. Sticking with robots now, a key feature of making robots that we can interact with is actually making them in some way intelligent, and our next guest is Professor Nigel Shadbolt. Uh, We met him at the BA Festival when we were in York recently, uh, and we were talking about free-thinking machines and murderous intellects, and he's with us now to fill us in. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Chris. So should we be scared of robots, then?
10: Well, the problem is, of course, when we look at our film portrayal of robots, they're invariably uh, murderous intellects, and uh, up to no good. That's the kind of popular image of robots and artificial intelligence. And in fact, somebody once defined AI as the art of making computers behave like the ones in the movies. Uh, But actually, it isn't anything quite as uh, malign or as bad as that.
0: What actually is artificial intelligence?
10: So artificial intelligence is... A branch of uh, study where you're trying to understand the nature of intelligence by building computer programs, trying to build adaptive software systems, trying to take hard problems about the way in which humans and other animals see and understand the world and build computers capable of replicating some of that behavior.
0: So basically you're trying to capture the workings of the human brain in a computer program.
10: Well, that's certainly one of the ambitions, although many people working in the area would say, look, there are lots of ways of being smart that aren't smart like us. So, in fact, we would be happy to build systems that display adaptivity, but perhaps aren't necessarily based on the exact way that humans operate.
0: So what are you trying to do to to try and create programs that can do this?
10: Well, in fact, the history of AI is a very interesting one. Um, If we look at... um, Again, if we look perhaps at the uh, film portrayal, one of the earliest and most famous uh, computers, um, AI computers, was HAL. Um, HAL was the robot in 2001. That was a film made in 1968. It shut the space then.
0: station, didn't it?
10: Absolutely. Well, it had a space station. I haven't quite got that. Well, we've got a, a space hotel. It had us going to sleep in cryogenesis. We haven't got that either. So, you know, predicting the future can be a bit dodgy. And uh, HAL was av- aware, he was reflective, and he turned into a murderous, paranoid uh, um, killer in the end. But the bit that the film got right was the chess playing. In fact, AI's chess programs beat the world champion back in 1997. In fact, at the time that happened, people said this is a crisis for the species. But actually, what it showed us was that huge increases in computing power plus a little knowledge and insight can really tackle very challenging programs and problems indeed.
0: So, what are the big things that people are working on now, people are trying to crack in order to develop better robots?
10: Well, in fact, in AI in general, with this brute force approach with the amount of computing power, we can do a whole range of things. In fact, AI is kind of everywhere but not recognised as such. It's in your car engine, your engine management system, there are rule-based systems thinking about whether your engine's running properly, in your washing machines getting the spin cycle right, translating languages in your Google search. So this There's is, this is machines actually... AI.
0: Sorry, I was just going to say, Nigel, so this is machines actually watching what's happening on happening and reacting to what's changing and, and learning from their experiences so they do That's the right exactly the next Right. Time.
10: Exactly right. But of course, it doesn't accord with our kind of popular image of AI. But this is much more, the AI call this is assistive intelligence. It's there supporting us in particular tasks. What we haven't got are these general purpose uh, robots able to reflect across a whole range of problems. And in fact, uh, the person who was talking about the semantic vision robot challenge was making exactly that point. It's hard to build programs that operate routinely across many, many problem areas.
0: So do you, when you're creating robots, though, always engineer an off switch so that there's no danger of these things running amok and taking over the world, which is what people are most frightened about?
10: Well, indeed, if you look at the kind of uh, commercialization of robotics, there's a company in the States, iRobot, that manufactures simple house-cleaning robots. It'll trundle around, particularly good in big, open uh, American homes, trundle around hoovering up the debris or cleaning the bottom of the pool. But really, that's a composition of some simple behaviors. It avoids colliding with objects. It can kind of more or less build a simple map of its environment. The question is, of course, when you take that same technology and put it into a weapons platform or into some of the more uh, military contexts. You would want human control, and this is exactly what we see in modern deployments of robots in the battlefield. And making sure that we, the human designers, understand the ethical implications and actually how we build override and safety into these systems is a hugely important question.
0: And just to finish off, Nigel, how far are we away from having a system where I could have a conversation with a robot or I even could be a robot making this program and no one would know?
10: Well, this is a famous Turing test. Alan Turing, a great computer scientist, actually helped crack the codes in the Second World War using uh, computing techniques. Uh, He was hugely interested in AI, and he said that if we ever got to that stage, effectively we'd have built an artificial intelligence. But there are many situations where programs can do a good job of emulating uh, a human, but not across the whole range of behavior. And the great thing, of course, about human beings is we're able to anticipate the unexpected the kind of snags that crop up in making a show just like this so i would think the job is safe for a little while yet
0: oh well that's a relief then thank you very much to nigel shadbolt who is president of the british computer society and from the university of southampton
2: thanks nigel thank you this is the naked scientist with dr chris and dr dave time now to go over to diana O'Carroll, to dive into this week's question
11: Hello and welcome to Question of the Week with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week, we're looking into the abyss with multimedia eyes.
9: Hi, my name is Dirk England. I'm a graduate student at Stanford University in the United States. Some animals, such as amphibians or seabirds, need to see above and below water. My question is, how do they do it? How do their eyes work in air and in water?
11: Why can't humans focus below water when other animals can? Professor Ron Douglas came up with the answer.
3: It is true that amphibious animals, such as ducks, seals and turtles, can see well in both air and water. For humans, however, the world becomes all blurred as soon as we stick our heads under the water. This is because in animals such as ourselves that live in air, two parts of the eye focus light, the lens within the eye and the cornea, which is a transparent window at the front. Of these, in humans, the cornea does about three-quarters of the focusing because there is a large difference in refractive index between the air and the cornea. The lens in our eyes is relatively flat and is mainly responsible for fine focusing of the image as we look at things at different distances by slightly changing its shape, becoming fatter as we look at closer objects. Our world becomes blurred underwater because water and the cornea have very similar refractive indices, so the cornea no longer focuses light. We therefore become very long-sighted underwater, as our lens is not optically strong enough to focus the light. What something like a duck does, therefore, is when it is in air, it has the same basic eyes that we do, with a cornea that focuses most of the light and a flattish lens. When it goes underwater, however, when the cornea no longer focuses light, it pushes its soft lens against a quite hard iris and part of the lens bulges through the pupil, forming a sort of nipple on the front surface of the lens. This acts as a very powerful lens and allows the animal to see underwater when the cornea isn't working as an optical surface. This allows diving birds, for example, to both successfully hunt for fish underwater and to catch the bread you throw at them on the surface.
11: The cornea in our eyes and water have the same refractive index. That's a sort of measurement to describe how fast light travels through different gloopinesses of transparent stuff. The thicker the medium, the slower light will travel. Light will also bend every time it slows down, and this property is what the human eye uses in air to focus light inside the eyeball. Underwater, however, the cornea is almost useless, as it no longer causes light to slow down and therefore bend. To compensate for this, we'd need a fatter lens or some other way of focusing the light where we want it inside the eye, like these guys.
3: Interestingly, there is a group of humans that seem to see quite well underwater. These are the Mokan, who are wandering sea gypsies inhabiting the coastal regions off Thailand and Malaysia. They make a living by diving in the sea, often without goggles, to harvest things like abalone. It turns out that when you compare their ability to see detail underwater to a similar group of Europeans, the Mokan do much better. Any camera enthusiast will tell you that if you want to see a large range of distances in focus, in other words, to have a large depth of field, you close down the aperture of the camera. So when the Mokan go underwater, what they have learned to do is to close down their pupil, giving them a large depth of field and compensating to some extent for the long-sightedness induced by losing the cornea as an optical surface underwater. Interestingly, given time, European children can learn to do this as well.
11: So it looks like we can learn to see underwater after all. Just don't try it in a soapy bath. Now from looking into the watery depths to listening to it.
7: I'm here from Canberra in Australia. And I've been wondering for a long time, why is it when you put a shell from the ocean up to your ear, that it sounds like the ocean inside the shell?
11: And we're sniffing out the answer to this one.
7: This is Ellen Kirkendall in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I
11: want to know if humans have a functioning Jacobson's organ. I've heard several different opinions on this matter. Do you have any thoughts as to how the big drink fits into a small shell? And do you know if we can smell what sex people are? Drop your questions and answers to me at week at thenakedscientist.com. That's all for now. Back to the studio.
2: Well, I didn't know. I may be able to train my eyes to see underwater. But do you know why you can hear the sea in a shell? Or if we have a Jacobson's, Jacobson's organ, the organ which reads the smell? Let us know by emailing week at Thanks, Dave. Got an
0: email here from Pab, who says... Regarding the effects of calloused fingertips caused by metal guitar strings, could this also account for the fact that when I tried to teach an old friend to use a laptop, she couldn't make the cursor move, even though I could? Does this mean with an ageing population, computer designers have to produce more sensitive touchpads geared to the changed skin of older fingers? What do you think, Dave?
2: Um, I thought as you get older, your skin gets thinner rather than thicker, unless she's just not doing anything, so the skin's building up.
3: Maybe she's
0: a guitar metalhead, you know, she's got really thick calloused fingers, I don't know. I don't know. Don't make
3: assumptions.
0: (laughs) We don't know, is the answer. Um, I would have thought, as Dave does, uh, Dave says, that skin being thinner as you get older should work a bit better um, in terms of picking up things on the touchpad. So does anyone know? Uh, Let us know if you have any thoughts on that. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, for this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave have been out to show us how some of the most complicated moving robot pieces rely on a very simple bit of science to get them moving.
5: Welcome to this week's Kitchen Science. Today, I've come to Dave Ansell's garage, which is where all of the ideas for kitchen science come from. And speaking of experiment ideas, Dave, what
2: are we doing today? We're going to be trying to turn a nail into a magnet. What have nails and magnets got to do with robots? One of the most common ways that robots move is using electric motors. Electric motors are entirely dependent on something called an electromagnet, which we're going to build later. Is this something people can do at home? Yeah, it should be no problem to do it at home. All you need is a fairly long piece of wire, maybe a metre or metre and a half of thin wire, thinner than the stuff you'd use to wire a house with, a fairly large battery like a C-cell or a D-cell, and a nail, ideally four or six inches long. The first thing you want to do is take the wire and wrap it round round and round and round and round and round the nail and leave five or six inches over at each end. Okay, so I now have a 6-inch iron nail, and
5: around that I've wrapped some copper wire 20 or 30 times. What's the next stage to make
2: this into a magnet? So we need to get electricity into this wire, so we need to strip the end centimetre or so of each end of the wire, maybe using a knife or a pair of scissors take the battery and touch one end of the wire to one end of the battery and the other end to the other end of the battery and put the nail near something it could pick up. Just to prove that that nail isn't already magnetic what happens if you just try and pick up some paper clips with the nail? It's not actually doing very much it's just moving the paper clips around it's not very magnetic at all. If we pass the current through it it's picking up a good 20 or 30 paper clips all at once if I let go they drop off.
5: That was really good. It actually picked up a handful of paperclips, but then as soon as you took the wire off the battery,
2: they all fell off again. Electricity and magnetism are actually very closely interlinked. They're actually aspects of the same force. And if you put an electric current through a wire, it turns into a magnet. So why can't we just pick up the paperclips with a length of wire? You could if you put enough current through that wire. The problem is that current will be absolutely enormous and it's not practical. So what you can do instead is get lots and lots of small pieces of wire with a small current running through them all close together. And the best way to do that is in a coil. Then what do we need the nail for? Well, actually, just using the wire, that would still be quite a weak magnet. The interesting thing about iron is that inside it, it's got lots of little tiny permanent magnets. And if you put them inside a magnetic field produced by our coils, they all line up. So that adds to the magnetic effect and makes everything stronger. What are the tiny magnets? On a tiny scale, there are actually electrons orbiting the nucleus in the iron atoms. And because on average more of them are orbiting in one direction than the other, they actually make little tiny electromagnets. And the special thing about iron and a couple of other metals, nickel and cobalt, is that all the atoms tend to line up in a row. So the little tiny magnets add up to form bigger magnets. But if the tiny magnets inside a piece of iron don't want to stay lined up, then how do we get magnets that are always a magnet? You pick a material, maybe an alloy of iron, where it's much harder for the tiny magnets to move around. You then heat up that material, put them in a strong magnetic field so they all line up, and you cool them down slowly, at which point the direction where they're pointing in is frozen in, and they're a permanent magnet. Cool. Well, you
5: said earlier that in motors they use both permanent magnets and electromagnets, but I haven't seen how we could get movement out of this.
2: We well, all work on the principle that if you change the direction of current in an electromagnet, it changes the polarity of the magnet. So if you put a current through the electromagnet, it's going to have a south pole which will be attracted to the north pole of a permanent magnet. So it will move towards it. Then if you flip the current, it's going to suddenly be, turn into a north pole and it's going to be repelled. So by repeatedly
5: changing the direction of the current, you change which end is the north and south pole of the electromagnet. And this, in turn, attracts and then repels and gets
2: the coil of wire spinning. Yeah, that's right. And there are lots of other kinds of motor which all work on the same principle with various degrees of sophistication. Now, I've seen massive electromagnets at a scrapyard. How do they scale this up? Basically, the more current you put through the wires and the more coils of wire you've got, the stronger the magnet's going to be. So they just use an awful lot of current and a lot of turns of wire. I've actually done quite a lot of that here. I've taken a piece of iron which is about an inch across, and I've wound maybe several hundred turns of wire around it, and we can put two or three amps through that, and so it should be able to pick up something rather heavier than a paperclip. One I've picked here is a fairly heavy vice, a good four or five kilos of cast iron. OK, well, let's see if we can pick it up. OK, I'll turn on the current.
5: That's fantastic. Dave is now holding a five-kilo cast iron vice. And it's now dangling in the air, just attached to the magnetic attraction of this inch-wide iron rod. That's really impressive, Dave. I'm really, truly surprised by how much weight that can hold.
2: Yeah, and if you kept scaling it up, essentially taking lots and lots of these things and putting them all next to each other, and you could pick up a car with no difficulty at all. That really is brilliant, Dave. Thanks ever so much for showing me.
5: Can I flip down now, Ben? <laughs> of course you can. And that's all we have time for on Kitchen <laughs> Science this week. But we'll be back with more Kitchen Science next week.
0: Thank you very much to Ben. And also thank you, Dave, for going out to your garage earlier this week and making an electromagnet to show us how it all works. More exciting experiments like that on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. The
1: Naked Scientists. Brought to you by thenakedscientists.com.
0: OK, Dave, back to this email we mentioned at the beginning of the programme from Kieran Harford in Dublin, in Ireland. She said, uh, hi, Chris, I love the show, listen by podcast every week, nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. My daughter came home from school recently to announce that she had learned at school that day that she would get wetter running through a rain shower than walking. So how can this be? What do you think?
2: I would have said that as long as the rain is constant and it's you're not in a shower it's getting heavier and um lighter um then it's probably the other way around because the rain can hit you in two kind of ways if you're just standing still it'll hit you on the top of you all the horizontal surfaces and that's only dependent on how long you're standing in the rain and also if you walk forwards you'll hit rain on the front of you and that's only dependent on how far you've walked through the rain so if you have if you get walking a mile you'll walk through a mile of rain which will hit you on the front and depending on how long you've t- that takes you'll have a certain amount that hits you on the top so if you do it quickly then or slowly it doesn't matter how much hits you on the front but if you do it slowly more will hit you on your head um, than if you do it quickly so you're better off to run than to walk however if the rain gets heavier and shorter so if you have a heavy rain shower you might be better off to walk slowly because if the rain's going to stop uh if it's going to stop raining before you finish walking then you might be better off walking very slowly and only getting the stuff hitting you on the top and not the stuff you're walking into
0: that's assuming the stuff hitting you on the top isn't going to run down your neck and make
2: you wet on the front and back anyway. It will still make you get wet on the front and back anyway. But it's the amount of rain which is hitting you. I'm sorry, I'm treating this as a physicist, so I'm making some assumptions here. But if you're if you're running through the really heaviest bit, you might hit lots of very heavy rain on your front. But if you'd have just waited, then you get less hitting on the front, and you get less wet.
0: So what do you think at home? If you have an alternative theory and you can help out, Kieran, then drop us a line. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much to our wonderful production team, to Ben Valsler, Mira Lingham and also to Diana O'Carroll, and thank you, Dr. Dave. Next week, we're going to be experimenting with exciting new materials. We'll be hearing about a newspaper, which is made of plastic. It rolls up into a very tight tube, but it rewrites itself just at the press of a button. We'll also be hearing about a new material that's so slippery that honey won't even stick to a spoon made of it. How does that work? And new ways to replace joints, an artificial material which is much better at joint replacements than what we've had before now. If you have any questions about any of that stuff or you just want to say hi, we love hearing from you. Drop us a line, chris at thenakedscientist.com Have a great week, see you next time, goodbye! The Naked
1: Scientists are sponsored by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com